0: One thing you'll notice about many of the main characters in the Old Testament is that God chose most of them out of unexpected places. God chose Abraham from a city called Ur. A town with the name Ur is probably not a super happening place, is it? God chose Joseph from a dungeon in Egypt god chose gideon from a backwoods farm god chose elijah from a town called Tishbe, which apparently was so small scholars have no idea where it is there's no historical record of it god chose david from a field of sheep god chose esther from a pagan beauty pageant and god chose nehemiah from a pagan palace now one thing these people have in common is that they are servants of god in the truest sense of the word in these pagan or backwoods places no one saw their service and devotion but god did god did nehemiah could have used many words to describe himself He could have called himself a high official, because he was. He could have called himself the right-hand man of the king, because he was. But instead, at the end of chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he simply calls himself God's servant. You see, in the great task of rebuilding Jerusalem, God didn't need an architect or a general. He only needed a servant. And you see, likewise, as you and I embark on the task of a rebuild, whatever that might be, maybe it's rebuilding our marriages, maybe it's rebuilding our families, rebuilding our walk with Christ, rebuilding our church, rebuilding our country and our world, we must do so with servant hearts. Now, the first part of chapter 2 in the book of Nehemiah reveals several characteristics of a servant of God that I think will be both inspiring for us and convicting. Let's go there now. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is kind of in the middle of your Old Testament there. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, the scripture will be on the screen and also it will be at ljc.life. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll we'll look at verses 1 through 6 this evening. 1 through 6. This is Nehemiah writing. He writes in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you be back? It pleased the king. send me so I set a time let's pray together father thank you for these powerful words they are so instructive and encouraging and we pray that every word here would fall on good ground by your spirit and that we would we would take every word here to heart so that we might be your servants And, Father, what an honor that is. What an honor it is to serve you. And so we pray that we just let these words wash over us and melt our hearts so that we can serve you better as we leave here tonight than when we came in. And it's in your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. If you could turn me up here in the monitors. here, Blake, that'd be awesome. Okay, so... Um, the book of Nehemiah shows us several characteristics of a servant. Let's look at I got them together. So the first one is God's servant is patient. God's servant is patient. Look at verse 1. Nehemiah writes, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, and I gave it to the king. Okay, so we know that the month of Nisan is four months after the month of Kislev, mentioned in chapter 1 verse 1 so this is four months later after chapter 1 verse 1 you see in chapter 1 nehemiah developed a tremendous burden for his city and at this point in chapter 1 he knows jerusalem is a sitting duck he knows it is that its enemies could come in could rush in and destroy jerusalem without really hardly any resistance he knows that Jerusalem's in big trouble. And he knows he does not have much time to speak to the king to get permission to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so what does Nehemiah do? He waits. He waits. He doesn't do anything for four months. Now, this particular characteristic of a servant of God is, for me personally, extremely challenging. (laughs) My wife will be the first in line to tell you that I am not a very patient person. Uh, This is a fruit of the Spirit that God is still uh, working to grow in me. But all of us here tonight live in a culture specifically designed to make sure we never wait for anything. It's specifically designed for that and we are happy to go along we go out of our way to not wait we spend extra money just so we don't have to wait Amazon knows this which is why they're creating drones right now to be able to deliver our packages to us in one day instead of two and then of course we'll complain that our drones are running late But Nehemiah has no problem waiting. God's servant is on God's time, not his own. So is Nehemiah just kind of sitting around twiddling his thumbs for four months? Well, not exactly. Waiting does not mean passivity. It doesn't. Yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God and we know God is in control of all things, but that is no excuse for laziness. None. And Nehemiah is not lazy. He is active while he waits. For one, we know that he has been praying continuously for four months. So that's one thing that he is doing. But also, it seems he's been preparing a strategy in the waiting. And we'll get to that more in chapter 2. We'll see Nehemiah's strategy. But there's a clue here in verse 6, if you look at it. It says, Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you be back? Now, this is interesting. And the reason it's interesting is that scholars tell us that it was very rare for a queen and a king to be together. I know it's in movies. You see a lot in movies and in Hollywood. But in real life, in the ancient world, it was very rare that a king and a queen would be seen together in public. So it kind of makes you think that this was part of Nehemiah's strategy. Like this couldn't be random. This couldn't be random. Uh, He had to have chosen this particular time to talk to the king. Now, why is that? We don't know. (laughs) We don't know why he chose this particular moment. Uh, It could be that Nehemiah has favor with the queen. Maybe he knows that she likes him. Maybe he knows that the queen has a softer heart than the king does. Maybe he knows that the queen has a lot of influence over the king. Now, you married men in the room know what kind of influence your wife has over you. I know for me, all it takes is one look from my wife. I mean, I'll just be talking, cutting up, having a good time, and I'll look over and I'll just see a particular look on her face, and I know it's immediately time to shut it down. All it takes is a look. (laughs) You guys know what I'm talking about. And maybe that's exactly the case with King Artaxerxes. And maybe Nehemiah knows that. And so he has chosen this specific time to meet with him. Whatever the case, it's very likely no accident. And so this is part of Nehemiah's strategy. And so yes, he's patient. Yes, he's waiting. But he's active in the waiting. The second uh, characteristic that chapter 2 shows us is that God's servant prays continuously. God's servant prays just all the time, all the time. How many of you have ever had to confront someone or have a conversation with someone, and it just makes you a nervous wreck beforehand? I mean, it just tears your stomach up. You know it's going to be serious. You know it's going to be a difficult conversation. And you just keep putting it off and putting it off. Man, it's hard. (laughs) You know it's not going to go great, but it's just something you have to do. Most of us have probably had a conversation like that in our lives. But let's be real no one in this room has had a conversation as intense as the one nehemiah is about to have no one has had maybe you could put this conversation probably in the top 50 or maybe even top 10 of intense conversations in the history of the world because you have to know who king artaxerxes is this is no king to fool around with this king is known for his temper and for his anger, and he just as soon kill you as to look at you. And Nehemiah knows all this real well. He's the right hand man to the king. He's seen the king do this. And he is about to ask this king for something extraordinary. This is gonna be intense. And so how does Nehemiah handle it? Look at verse two. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad? when you were not ill. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. Because see, Nehemiah knew what he was about to ask him. And Nehemiah knows this king is ruthless. Now I'm sure Nehemiah, as as we all do when we're we're coming up upon a conversation we don't really want to have, Don't we kind of play the situation out in our minds a bunch of times? (laughs) We practice in front of the mirror. You know, we kind of, okay, they might, I'll say this, and then they might say this, and how will I respond? Okay. So, well, you know, Nehemiah did that. He's playing out all of the king's possible responses in his head uh, before he talks to the king. And I'm sure that one of the responses that played out in Nehemiah's mind is, you ungrateful little twerk. Let me get this straight. You want to leave my kingdom with all of my inside information that you have, being my second-hand man, and you want to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that I commanded be torn down. Oh, and you want me to pay for it. You know that that played out in Nehemiah's mind multiple times before he talked to the king. <laughs> so what what is he saying? He says, I was very much afraid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he was. He knew that there's a much better chance of the king killing him than the king granting his request. So logically, Nehemiah was scared out of his boots. And here's how he starts the conversation. Look at verse 3. He was scared. He says, I was very much afraid, but verse 3, I said to the king, may the king live forever. That's a pretty smart way to start the conversation. (laughs) May the king live forever. You're awesome, man. Love you, bro. (laughs) That's a great way to start it. May the king live forever. And then what does he say? He says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. In verse 5, and I answered the king. This is so instructive for us. You see what he did? Right smack dab in the most important conversation of Nehemiah's life. He prays. He's right in the middle of the conversation. The king asks him a question, and what did he do? He said a little prayer before him. Who knows what it is? Couldn't have been long because he had to answer the king. But just a short little, Lord, help me. Lord, guide my lips. Lord, let, let my response fall on good ears. Lord let this man not kill me where I stand. Something. But this isn't this one of the amazing things about prayer. Like we don't have to come together here at Life's Journey and hold hands and sing kumbaya in order to approach God. No. You and I can approach God anytime, anywhere. We can pray in the car, we can pray in the shower. We can pray at work, we can pray at school, we can pray right in the middle of a conversation, and our God will hear us. How neat is that? That's super neat. Acts seventeen twenty seven says that God is not far from any one of us. Ever. So while that is super neat, that also means we have no excuse. We have no excuse not to pray because we don't have to light any candles, we don't have to hold hands, God is near us all the time and so we have no excuse not to be praying people. If we are going to rebuild, if we're going to reach our city for the gospel, we should be in constant prayer for our city, for our neighbors, for our family, for our co-workers, for our schoolmates. Etc., etc. We should be in constant prayer for them. Okay, the third characteristic this shows us is that God's servant speaks boldly. God's servant is bold. Look at verse 5 again. He's scared to death, but he answered the king and he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that i can rebuild it obviously it took incredible guts and courage for nehemiah to spit this sentence out i just imagine his throat being like super dry you know his tongue sticking to the t- the top of his mouth because this is this isn't just any joe blow he's asking this question to this is a very serious individual and in the most powerful individual in the world it took incredible guts to utter this just this one sentence and this one sentence changed all of history all of history is different because nehemiah was willing to utter this one sentence Now, you and I may not be faced with a situation as history-altering as Nehemiah. But you and I will face multiple instances in our lives when taking a stand for the will of God. For the gospel will make all the difference. It'll make all the difference. Small conversations are still changing lives. Small ones. You're probably not going to be in a conversation that's going to make its way into God's Word, but you will be in multiple conversations in your life where eternity is on the line for somebody. You will. Never underestimate the importance of small, awkward conversations about the gospel. One sentence with a co-worker, one sentence with a single mom at the park, one sentence with a classmate, one sentence with a lost family member can make an eternal impact. Just one sentence. But will we have the courage? Will we have the boldness? Did you know that the most common thing the Apostle Paul prayed for in the New Testament was boldness, by far the most common thing he prayed for. Now isn't that interesting? Think about it. He did not pray for his circumstances to change, right? He didn't pray for things to be easier for him. No. He just said, Lord, give me the boldness in this difficult situation to speak your words. To speak life into this hard situation. Paul even went as far as to rebuke an apostle to his face. We saw that in Galatians, didn't we? He rebuked Peter to his face. And how did Paul pray for that? He prayed for boldness. Just give me boldness. I know it needs to be said. I don't want to say it. This is going to be hard to say. So give me boldness. And how cool is it that we can pray to God in in this in the conversation. We're talking with a single mom at the park. We're scared to mention the gospel, scared to mention church or Jesus, and we can just say a quick little prayer like Nehemiah. Lord, give me the boldness. Just Lord, give me boldness to say to speak life in, into this person right here right now what an incredible example for us both Nehemiah and Paul now how does the king respond to Nehemiah's ridiculously bold (laughs) request look at verse 6 then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me how long will your journey take And when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. (laughs) Wow. It pleased the king to send me. What? (laughs) What do you mean it pleased the king to send me? This is unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, this... This is remarkable, and it begs the question, why? Why? This is a ridiculous request from Nehemiah. King Artaxerxes was the very one that commanded the walls to stop being built in the first place. Now he's asking this same king if he can go rebuild them. What? What do you mean it pleased the king to do it? I think it leads us to our last point. The answer is our last point. And that God's servant serves everyone. Everyone. Here's what we know from the king's response. We know from the king's response that Nehemiah served him well. How do we know that? because the first thing the king asks is when will you be back when will you be back if nehemiah was not a good servant this would be a fantastic opportunity for the king to say hey you know what Um, as you travel to your homeland why don't you just stay there? Why don't you just stay? <laughs> this would be a golden opportunity for the king to just kind of get rid of this guy. Yeah, sure, you can have some money to go, ha- have a good time, and, but hey, why don't you just take her easy once you get there? But no, what is the first thing, the king says, when will you be back? This king did not want to see Nehemiah, leave. Oh, I'll let you go. But you're an awesome servant. And I'm going to need you back. How cool is that? The mark of a true servant of God is that he serves everyone well. Even pagan kings. A guy in my life group recently asked me Uh, how he could be the best witness for Christ in his workplace. And I said the best witness would be for you to be the best worker there. Be the best worker there. To serve your coworkers and bosses well. And I think that would apply to you teenagers at school uh, or really any situation uh, that you're in serve others well that is an incredible witness and then what I told him was I said now at at opportune times God will open up doors for you to share the gospel he will but if you're lazy and you're always late and you're always complaining about the job about your boss and then you try to share the gospel probably not going to land super well (laughs) but if you'll serve your boss well and your co-workers well and then you give them the gospel it has a much better chance of landing on that person's heart notice nehemiah is not clergy he's not he's not a pastor he's a dude with a job And he does that job extremely well. Extremely well. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Nehemiah treats his pagan boss as if he was Christ. I mean, just, just look. Look at how he treats him here. This hard, ruthless, pagan king. Nehemiah loves him. Look at the respect he gives him here. Look how he approaches him with grace and loyalty. This is an incredible example for us. It is so easy to look down on our unbelieving neighbors, bosses, politicians, etc. It's easy. It's easy to kind of think we're just a, just a little bit better than them. But that's not how Nehemiah saw things. That's not how God's servants see things. How do God's servants treat their unbelieving neighbors, bosses and politicians? They serve them. They love them. They pray for them. So, in conclusion, how do we do all this? How do we do it? How do we live out these characteristics of a true servant of God? How can you be patient? How can you pray continuously? How can you speak boldly? How can you serve everyone? well you can't and neither can i and as we'll see later on in the book neither can nehemiah (laughs) even nehemiah didn't do all of this perfectly no neither nehemiah nor you and me can serve god the way he desires but there was one who did there was one who did There was one who came from a backwoods town called Nazareth. There was one who was sent to change the world with his ministry, but waited patiently for 30 years in the labor force as a carpenter. There was one who hardly ever went a single moment without praying to his father. There was one who spoke boldly in the face of danger, never shying away from chastising the self-righteous or proclaiming good news to the poor. And there was one who not only welcomed all comers, but served them too. The sick, the broken, the hurting, the homeless, the outcast, the believer, and the unbeliever. Finally culminating in the greatest act of service imaginable. At the cross of Calvary. No. You are not a perfect servant. But Jesus was. And he served perfectly in your place. So that by faith in him, all of his perfection could be credited to your account. Wow. What a Savior. And you see, it's that truth, that truth itself should serve as your motivation. It should serve as your motivation to be the best servant you can be. I know for me, when I was a smug, God-hating atheist, Jesus loved me served me, died for me. And it is his loving service towards me that motivates me to lovingly serve others. I have no other motivation other than the love of Christ. I want to love and serve others the way he has loved and served me. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, and was raised again. Let's pray together. Jesus, let us not leave here consumed with our to-do list. But let us leave here reveling in your great love. We are not good servants, but you were, and you still are. We fail so often, Lord, to pray for our city, for our family, for our neighbors, yet you continuously pray for us, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we are nothing without you. You alone are who we can So please, Lord, give us your spirit tonight so that we might see and feel and know your love, your love for us, and your love for our neighbors. Because we are sinners, and on our own, we cannot love our neighbors well, but you do. And we need you. heart Lord we need your spirit to move us and to inspire us to motivate us and to empower us we are nothing without you please in your grace give us your love a greater and deeper and clearer picture of your love